A lot of things are going on in our world right now that it gets really difficult for us to understand what's happening. Uh, I mean, we just have a constant barrage of shootings that perhaps because of the media we are so quickly made aware of, whether it's school shootings or at businesses or uh, in Las Vegas a while back. There just are all sorts of really horrible things, and, and not just shootings. I mean, stories of people just driving into crowds with a vehicle and, and horrible stuff going on that it's, it's really hard to understand what's happening. It's hard to understand a little bit from some people why is God permitting these kind of things to happen? I've had people ask me those questions. If, he's, if, he, can, if he could stop it, why doesn't he? And there, there are a lot of things that I think we really battle with. And today, I think, gives us a chance to touch on some of those questions with what I hope is an answer that will not only satisfy, but will sustain you. Because I think it's really too important, important for us to understand that... Uh, we're not always going to have clear answers as to why. But we do have some, some sustaining truth that I think can lift us up. When life gets past our ability to understand, I think as we turn our attention to the scriptures, we find that the answer is not necessarily in information, it's in a relationship. It's in our relationship with God through Christ. And I think we need to be willing to trust that. Uh, so that we don't have to continue to stew. We don't necessarily get specific factual answers, but I think we have sufficient satisfaction if we will listen. I'm going to cover a lot of material. I found one thing already that I really love about preaching out here. Actually, two things. At least currently, there's not a second service to follow, so I'm really not on a deadline. And secondly, there's no clock, so I have no idea what time it is. And uh, I, figure, I figure if people start leaving, it's probably getting close to lunchtime and I've run over, so uh, I'll know what's happening. Genesis chapter 18, we're going to pick up just after where we were last week. Remember the account where uh, Sarah was told uh, at almost 90 years of age, you're going to have a baby, and she laughed. And God said, why did she laugh? Is there anything impossible for me? And uh, we're picking up right after that account. These men have come, the angel of the Lord, and uh, two angels have showed up and, at Abram's place, and he has fed them, and they've gotten this information to them. And then we pick up the story in verse 16. The men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abram went with them to set them on their way, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see what, whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to start a little bit and talk about God's evaluation of Abraham. What God is about to do in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in the uh, Old Testament is a dramatic response to sin. 
and Abraham is going to find out about it prior to it happening. He's going to get a forewarning of what is about to happen. How often do you think God lets somebody know, listen, here's something major that's about to happen, and I'm going to let you know. Every once in a while, usually when it affects that person directly, it, he came, of course, to, to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby, and Elizabeth was told, you're going to have a son, and so on. There are some occasions in the scripture, but it's pretty rare indeed, and here's why God did that. Here's, here's what God thought of Abraham and why he did it. First of all, it was because of what Abraham would become. And it's all about the promises that God made, right? He would become a great and powerful nation, and he would be a blessing to all nations. And if you're here, if you're sitting here, and you've trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation, you are part of the blessing of Abraham to all nations. So that continues to this day, and the promise of God continues to be fulfilled throughout history. Secondly, it's because of how he would live. I think verse 19 is a very interesting thing. I've chosen him that he may command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised. God chose him. Abraham would do what he was supposed to do and God would bless him for it. It's a very interesting mixture to me of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Abraham would lead his household well, which is a whole separate sermon for we men who are fathers and husbands and our responsibility to lead our household, to walk righteously, to do justly before God. That's what God says in the Old Testament is really what he wants, right? I want you to live rightly. I want you to do justly. Abraham would lead his family that way. That's how he would live his life. It was a mixture of God's sovereignty, God choosing him, and Abraham being obedient to what he would do. And then what he gets to know. He's, he's going to hear about what's happening with Sodom. The outcry against Sodom, God describes in terms almost like it has come to heaven and he's heard about it and he's coming down to check it out. And we realize, of course, that God in this, in this manner is kind of condescending to our understanding. God didn't need to come down to check it out, but he's, he's helping us to understand what's going on. And he said, this outcry is so grievous against uh, Sodom that I'm coming down and I will know if it's not true. I'm going to check this situation out. And all of that is expressed to Abraham because of God's evaluation of him. Here's a man who will walk with me, who will honor me with his life. I'm going to bless his life. I need to let him know what's happening. And then we have a, I think, a short study in, I think, in prayer, uh, among other things. It's, this is about pleading with God. There are a couple of important things for us to learn here. The first is this little quick understanding about prayer. So let me read down through this whole next section and just listen along as you hear the interaction of Abraham with the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus before he became Jesus Christ when he came to earth. This is anything in the Old Testament that you see the angel of the Lord. It's the second person of the Trinity. Verse 22, the men turned from there, went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all of the earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose 50 of the 50, or five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Can I give you a couple of quick thoughts about intercession here? Abraham, of course, is pleading primarily on behalf of Lot. He knows Lot has moved to Sodom. He knows that he's down there. He's praying, if you find just a few righteous people down there, are you still going to destroy the whole place? And I think that he comes with a teachable attitude. I think he's really asking. I know that he, he keeps coming back, but I think there is a sense of teachableness here on Abraham's part. I think he's, he's coming wanting to know, and he's, he's going to learn the answer to a question that I think is really important for us to understand. We've had, we have the luxury, as we go through these high points of Abraham's life, of seeing his uh, instruction in the character of God. And I'm going to review that in just a second. But I think he's being teachable. I think he's being humble. He, of course, refers several times, I know I'm dust and ashes. Please don't be angry. I just want to ask this. I'm really sorry. Can I just ask one more question? There is a, a humbleness about him, but he is also persistent. He's going to continue until he gets the answer to, to the actual question. And I want to suggest that this is the million-dollar question. I know there's only one space there. I figured you'd write in one and all those zeros, okay? Um, the million-dollar question. I think that Abraham understands a couple of things about God so far. Number one, he understands his authority. God came to him in his paganism and said... I want you to leave your family, your kindred. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to go to a new land that I'll show you eventually. And Abraham obeyed. He understood that God had authority to do whatever God decided to do. Then, as we go through these highlights in Abraham's life, we understand that Abraham learned about the power of God. Because now, with a wife that's 90, almost 90, and he and almost 100, they've just found out they're going to have a child together. God can do anything. He has the power to do anything. So he has all authority, and he has all power. So he's not asking these questions, I don't think, having to do with whether or not God can do whatever he wants to here. I think the question is, I know God can do anything, but is it always the right thing? 
I think he's learning about the justice of God. I think he's coming to grips with the fact that God, whatever God does, is right. And ultimately, I think he has to learn to trust that. God never answers the question. He does say, I won't destroy it if I find that many people, but the ultimate answer to that question is the same that's found in Romans 3, right? There's nobody righteous in that city. There's no one righteous, not even one, Paul said in Romans 3. So the ultimate answer is, no, I won't, I won't destroy it if I find righteous people, but I'm not going to find righteous people. But really the question that Abraham is dealing with is the justice of God. Is what God does always right? Can I trust him? Can I trust him to do what's right even when I don't know exactly what he will do or I don't know exactly why he does what he does? Job had the same thing throughout that experience in his life recorded for us in the book of Job. God can do whatever he wants, but it is always the right thing. Can I trust him even if I don't understand? I think that's what he's dealing with here. What about Lot? What about if there's only five righteous? Well, only four people left, and none of them were righteous. We'll see as the story progresses. So what do we know is true about Lot? Nobody was righteous. It was only grace that saved even Lot. It was his mercy, the mercy of God, and the grace of God that rescued Lot. It was not because Lot was a righteous man. It was not because he was having such an impact in the city of Sodom that God rescued him. It was because God is gracious and merciful. That's always true, always has been true, and it has always been the case that when someone is rescued from destruction, it is because God is gracious to them. It is still true today. We're going to swing back around to that. Now, as we move into the 19th chapter... God moves towards Sodom, and the angels come to an exceedingly wicked city. This whole chapter is a very straightforward discussion about sin and judgment, which is why I say it's really heavy. So let's start in at verse 1 and talk about the fact that sin is serious. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to... He rose... <laughs> Dirty dog. Every time I talk, it's going to do that, isn't it? He rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Sodom's culture. I want you to know something, first of all, before I talk about the obvious issue here. I want you to think about some verses from Ezekiel chapter 16. As God is talking through the prophet Ezekiel to the Jewish people, his people, 
He is chastising them for their sinfulness and their sinful attitude. He compares them to Sodom. I'm jumping one verse back here, but as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. I know that there is a a common connection, and there ought to be, between our understanding of the sin of homosexuality in the city of Sodom, and in fact there were laws, and probably still are, I didn't check this week, on the books in our own country against sodomy, its namesake. But I want you to back up and think about the fact that what was their, the essential problem? They were prideful and excess of food and prosperous ease. We could write this about America, right? We're arrogant, we have way too much food, and we are so prosperous that we have too much leisure time on our hands. I do. I, I, I read this and I think to myself, I, there's a part of my heart that would have been at home in Sodom. I don't, I don't think we want to skip over this part. Because I think we quickly, if, if the particular sin of homosexuality is not one that affects me, I quickly think, oh, Sodom, I don't have to learn anything to learn from them. That's what I have to learn from them. They had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and they did not aid the poor and needy. They had more than they needed, and they didn't care about anybody else. It's really a powerful thing to think about the culture of Sodom. And they were completely unaware of it. Luke refers to that in Luke 17. I won't take time. Oh, I guess I will. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. They had no clue they were in danger. The same context talks about Noah, the people who were in the days of Noah, all those years, those decades when he was building that ark. They had no clue that they were facing the judgment of God because of their sin. We need to be a lot more alert to the tendency towards sinfulness of our hearts. Sodom's heritage, of course, what we know Sodom for mostly is this situation in verses four and five when all the men of the city say come and send those men out to here we want to know them we want to have sexual relations with those two men please send them out here they're very very blunt as to their intention that is what god described as an abomination back in ezekiel now i want to i want to say two things Sin is sin, and homosexuality is wrong, and it doesn't matter what our culture says about it, it's always going to be sin because God declares it to be sin. So we need never backpedal and talk as though we need to find a better way to say that it's wrong. What we do have to do as a church is be careful that we don't uh, villainize people who are struggling with that particular sin. Just because we don't, 
The majority of people do not struggle with same-sex attraction. The majority of people find it offensive to think about. So we very quickly become judgmental and arrogant in our attitude. I want you to know that coastal is a place of grace. And if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I, I won't, of course, but I could name you two people I know who are part of the larger coastal family, have connections with coastal who struggle with same-sex attraction, one of whom is married and has a child. There is... There is no judgment in the sense of you're not allowed to talk about that. We will help you. We will do everything we can to help you. We have resources to assist you in dealing with that struggle. And I want you to know that that is not a struggle that cannot be overcome by the grace of God. There is nothing so bad that God cannot overcome it by his grace. And we as a church family need to be careful that we don't elevate certain sins and say, well, this one is so bad, they are, they're really pretty far away. That would be a real miracle. It's a miracle that he saved me because I was prideful. I was arrogant. I had all of these other things that were also part of Sodom's heritage. So can we, can we be alert to that? And I want you to know that regardless of what sin you particularly struggle with, it may be pornography, it may be some other sexual sin, it may have nothing to do with sexual sin. It may have to do with food, excess of food, may have to do with a lack of compassion. It may be some other particular sin. God knows. The longer we're saved and the longer we walk with God, the more our sins become internal and less obvious to everybody else. That doesn't make them less serious. Psalm 139, there's a whole section in 12 verses in Psalm 139 that describe the difficulty of getting away from God. You, I can't go here. I can't go to the heavens. I can't go down to the, below the earth. I can't go to the west or the east. There's nowhere I can go. To the uttermost part of the earth, still there, you will find me. I can't hide when I have sin that's tolerated in my life. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So I want us to know the seriousness of sin, and I want the weight of that to bear down on us a little bit. I realize that we, we think of Sodom and we have this very specific concept of sin, but I want us to realize the weight of sin as it weighs us down. I want you to think also about the fact that sin has consequences. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. This is when they've all crowded around the house. Please send out those two men. We want to have relations with them. He went out the men, to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. I can hardly even read verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who've not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I have two daughters. I have no doubt in my mind that if a man wanted to do whatever he pleased to my daughter, I would give my life to protect my daughters. I would never go outside to a group of men and say, here, gang rape my daughters, just don't touch these guys because they're my guests. 
I want you to understand the family impact of sin. Sin has consequences, and it begins with the impact on my own family. When I permit and tolerate sin in my life, it affects my family. Lot's laxity. You remember the description when he and Abraham in chapter 13 of Genesis first separated. It tells us uh, Lot looked. God, uh, Abraham said, you take whatever land you want, I'll take what's left. And Lot, it says, he looked up and he saw the well-watered plains of the valley and he decided he was going to go and dwell there. He went down there and he pitched his tent. And then we see a few verses later that he pitched, pitched his tent towards Sodom, meaning he's moving closer and closer to Sodom. By the time the angels arrive here in chapter 19, it describes him as sitting in the gate. In that culture, by the time you were sitting in the gate, you were part of the the. Uh, recognized leadership of the community. You were, you were respected among the people. There has been a progression of sin in, in Lot's life. There has been a progression whereby he began by looking at with intrigue at the beauty of this thing, and the closer he got, the, the, the more he became invested in being part of the culture. There's a serious family impact. And he offers his daughters in order to protect these guests. What kind of an offer is that? What, what kind of a father would offer that for his daughters? Now, lest we think they were lily white, we get to the end of the chapter. Once they've all left and everybody, including their husbands, has been destroyed in Sodom and they're up in the hill country... His daughters realize, you know what? We're living out here by ourselves with our father. We're never going to have any children. So in turn, one night after the other, they get their father drunk and each go in and have relations with their father and get pregnant by their dad. So, I mean, the, the family impact of a man not taking appropriate guards for his family and leading them in righteousness has resulted in incest. It has resulted in his offer of his daughter's it's incredible. And we think to ourselves, perhaps in our pride, oh, well, it's never going to get that bad for me. And I want to suggest to you, sin always will get that bad if left unchecked. James chapter 1, if you want to take a minute and look there, verse 13. I'll just read it up there. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That is the normal sequence. My, my desires... Sometimes perfectly normal built-in desires, sometimes desires contrary to nature, but nevertheless it is my desires that lure me away. I've, I've told uh, Keith I want to go fishing with him, but I want to do it when the weather's nice because I'm a fair-weather fisherman, I admit it. He likes to go fishing when it's cold and the water's cold because that's when the stripers are hitting, and I'm like, I'll look at the pictures. Thank you very much. 
but I'll fish in the summertime, and I love that. And I love trying to figure out the right bait and to throw it and wiggle it along just the right way to, to take the natural desire of that fish to eat something and stick a lure in front of him that looks just about right, and he comes over with his natural desire, and he grabs that lure. Fortunately for those fish, since I release all the ones I catch, in their case, it doesn't lead to death, so the illustration falls down. <laughs> But the reality is still true, right? It is, it is my desires that left unchecked that without the discipline and the grace of God coming into to be intervening in the situation that I'm going to sin. Whether it's because my desire for food gets out of hand or my desire for sexual fulfillment gets out of hand or my desire for position gets out of hand or my desire for money gets out of hand, whatever the particular thing is, if it gets out of hand, left unchecked, it leads to death. It is the, it is the path to death. That's the normal sequence. Sin has consequences. And ultimately, sin will be judged. Back in Genesis chapter 19, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place for we're about to destroy it because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went to his sons-in-laws who were married to his daughters. Up, oh, get out of this place. The Lord's about to destroy it. But they thought he was just joking. His testimony had become so useless that his own sons-in-law thought he was joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away. And, and off they go, literally grabbing him by the arm and dragging him out of the city. And as the account goes on, they're told, Listen, run, do not even look back, run. And Lot, in the midst of all of that, says, Well, now listen. No, my lords, do the next one. Uh, there... If your servant has found favor in your sight, and I'm really grateful, and you've shown me great kindness, but I can't escape to the hills lest disaster overtake me and I die, behold, this city's near enough to flee to. So he wants to run. That's just a little one. That's just a little city. So maybe that one isn't so bad. Let me escape there, and my life will be saved. They said, fine, go there, but hurry up, because until you get there, we can't do what we've come here to do. Sin will be judged, and I want you to know that sometimes God delays judgment, and in fact, God often delays judgment. 1 Peter chapter 3 is a powerful passage, rather 2 Peter chapter 3, it's a powerful passage of Scripture talking about the delay of judgment that I think we are experiencing right now in our own situation. 2 Peter chapter 3, wait, I need both hands. I want to read it to you because I think it's uh, pretty powerful. No, you know what it is, First Peter. All right. Don't you love it when the preacher can't find his own way in the Bible? That's just... At any rate... Oh, this was Second Peter 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say... Where's the promise of his coming? 
Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation and so on. And it talks about how they deliberately overlook creation and the flood and all of these things. Verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for judgment by fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is delaying judgment today. Sin, in fact, will be judged, and God is not going to let that go. Judgment is coming, but he's delaying it, and he's delaying it with the purpose that people may respond in repentance and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But judgment is also certain. Chapter 10, or rather verse 10 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Eventually, once they got to the city, they in fact looked back and the city was being destroyed. The sun had risen on the earth, Genesis 19, 23. When Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Judgment is certain. And judgment is fearful. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is said that Jonathan Edwards, preacher from a number of generations ago, preached on that text so powerfully that they were in the days of hard seats, there were fingernail marks in the backs of the pews from people gripping them so tightly as he pictured them as a spider dangling over the fires of hell by a spider's web. We, we forget in our culture of ease, our prosperous ease, that judgment is not only certain, but it is fearful. Sin will be judged. I, it is not in my constitution to stop there. Thankfully, it is not in the heart of God to stop there either. And I want you to find your way as we close to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love that song we sang just prior to the message. I need you. Every hour I need you. Uh, there, is a, there is a desperation that ought to rise up in our hearts. This is an incredible passage of scripture that I think has a lot of application to the situation at Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It's an amazing thing to me that God desires to use us to help other people become reconciled to God. That's what Lot should have been doing in Sodom. He should have been an ambassador. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's why God has us here. That's why God has coastal with a campus in Gloucester so that we can impact this middle peninsula with the reality of the gospel. People are lost, hopeless, on their way to hell. Everybody's that way. That's not a mean thing to say. It's the truth. What's mean is not to give them the hope of the gospel. We are ambassadors. Our job is to go to people and help them know how they can be freed from their sin, how they can get out from under the certain judgment of God. He's reconciled us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we say to them, the second part of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And we have to understand that when, when two parties are reconciled, and in our terms, as we understand it, we have party A and party B, and they meet in the middle and they're reconciled. When it comes to God, we have party A, and the reconciliation is us being reconciled to God. God doesn't meet in the middle. He doesn't need to because he provided everything that needed to be done so you could be completely righteous and holy. And how did he do it? Verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is serious. Sin is, has consequences. Sin will be judged. And it was judged in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, God judged my sin in Jesus. And the only way for me to take advantage of the fact that that's already been cared for is for me to be in Christ. So if you're here and you don't know for sure that you're right with God, you're not certain that you've uh, been made right with God and will no longer face his judgment, I'm here to tell you there is hope in Christ. It is the only place you will find hope, but it is the one place that you will certainly find hope doesn't matter to me what the nature of your particular sin is that you struggle with. I would guess if you're like me and like most of us, you've got several things you struggle with. doesn't matter to me what or how much or how deeply you struggle with it. What matters to me is, is Jesus' death and resurrection sufficient to care for your sin? And it is. He took your sin so that you could have his righteousness and be right in your standing with God. And if you will simply come to God and acknowledge your sinfulness and seek his forgiveness based on the person and work of Jesus. Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for my sin. I, 
I'm accepting what he did as for me, in my place, in my stead, as the verse said. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and make me your child. That's it. That's what it is. And a transaction happens that takes you from what the Bible describes the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. If, if you need to do that today, there are people kind of hanging around up at the front here today after the service that would love to sit down and share that with you. And if, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, I, I implore you to be one of the ambassadors. That's why God saved you. He made you his child so you can help other people be reconciled. We're not just here so we can have a convenient place to come to church. We're here to impact the Middle Peninsula with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get to be a part of that. It's incredible to me. Have you, have you thought about that? God, just as surely as he chose Ab Abraham to walk blamelessly before him, he chose you to be here where you are in this place to walk blamelessly, to do justly, and to be ministers of reconciliation. What an incredible thing. You get to partner with God in the great work of redemption. Pretty powerful, don't you think? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's really an amazing thing to me. Uh, the holy God of the universe, who has no, uh, no need to bypass our sin, who has every right to judge us with a penalty of death and separation from you forever. Um, that's your authority. But in your great power and in your great love and in your great justice, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, executing your judgment against sin on him so that if we would simply come in faith to trust in him and his finished work for us, we would be made right and no longer need to stand under your judgment. Lord, it's just such an incredible thing to me, and I am so very grateful. Help us, Father, to be messengers of reconciliation. Help us to be ambassadors of yours, that, that as we go to the world around us and interact with the people in our lives, whether we work with them or whether they even live in our own very home or at, at uh, school or wherever it is that we are, our, our friends and our neighbors, Lord, help us to remember that you've put us here so that people can be reconciled to you. I'm so grateful and I pray that if we learn anything and remember anything from today, it's the seriousness of sin and it's the lavishness of the grace of God in Christ. Help us, Father, to, to focus our attention on that and let it, let it change us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.